The truth is, said Scrub, we were so jolly keen on getting to this place that we weren't bothering about anything else. At least, I know that I was. Ever since we met that woman with the knight who didn't talk, we've been thinking about nothing else. We've nearly forgotten about Prince Rillian. I shouldn't wonder, said Puddleglum, if that wasn't exactly what she intended. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. Thank you for joining us. Just a reminder that today we're talking about the sixth book in the series, The Silver Chair. But general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we do tend to go on tangents into other stories we enjoy. We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's anything else too far out there. But today we're discussing the Silver Chair, Chapter 8, The House of Harfang. Under me. Sorry, <laughs> I had a dream. It was super weird. Uh, think- this is a family-friendly podcast, Kyle. I don't think you can talk about that here. All right. Summary. This is what summary. I, summary. That's what you said. That's what I was going to give you, right? Um, so, a summary of chapter eight. As they stood before the room of giants, Jill couldn't speak from nervousness, so Scrub had to step forward and address the giant king and queen. If you please, sire, the lady of the green kirtle salutes you by us and said you'd like to have us for autumn feast. That's an interesting way of phrasing that, Chase. Jill didn't like the looks of the king and queen, and they smiled at one another. The king licked his lips, and the queen welcomed them, and they reached down to shake their hands. Again, not sketchy at all. Uh, they asked what that was, referring to Puddleglum, who was still drunkenly saying, We're It was at this point Jill began to cry, as she was still only just beginning to thaw out from the cold that they had trekked through. Seeing this, the queen said to get the children food and baths and toys and anything at all to give them comfort. For if they cried too much, they wouldn't be good for the autumn feast, because everyone knows, uh, you know, your your meal is best when it's happy. Uh, some giant served uh, servant picks up, picked the three of them up, carried them off to their rooms. And Jill's room was the size of a church and would have been grim if it weren't for the roaring fire and plush carpet. She wasn't handed over to the queen's, uh, she was handed over to the queen's old nurse, a hunched woman who uh, was smaller for a giant, but still a giant nonetheless. She filled a giant foot bath and helped Jill into it. The bath was like being in a swimming pool, uh, and the towels were so large you could roll on, uh, roll around on them to dry off, which still feels like an inefficient way to dry off. Uh, after that, Jill was given some splendid human-sized clothes, which is a little skeptical, uh, but that made just uh, Jill think uh, that they must be used to, you know, for all the guests that are human-sized if they have these lying around. Don't worry about where the, guest, the guests went or what happened to them. Just know that they have the clothes there. Uh, a human-sized table and chair was then brought and set with the large dinner. Uh, Jill was annoyed that they kept bringing her dolls and toys and talking to her like she was a child. It was no longer snowing out, but instead raining, and Jill was given a nice bed and was tucked in for the gi- over the night by the giantess. How sweet. In the dead of night, there came to Jill a dream, and it was like she woke in the same room, and the great wooden horse by the fire moved across the room on its own, but when it got to her, it was no longer a horse, but a lion. And not a toy lion, but the real lion, capital R, capital L, just as she'd seen him on the mountain beyond the world's end. The lion told her to repeat the signs, which she found she couldn't remember. Her, she then picked her up uh, and took her to the window, where she looked out and saw, under me, written across the world or the sky. She didn't really know which. Uh, then the dream faded, and then she woke up. The next day, she couldn't remember her dream at all. Eustace and Puddleglum were brought to see her, and together they all looked out the window, because that's just what you do. 
in your friend's room uh, that you just came to, and they saw that the flat-top hill they had trekked across was, in fact, the ruins of a giant city. And written across it were the words, Under me! They had messed up the second and third signs, they realized. And suddenly, the dream rushed back to her, and she apologized. They realized the city and the writing had been there all along, but they were so focused on what the lady in her silent night had told them that they missed it. But now, they knew that they had to go look for the prince under the ruined city. They now turned, to, uh, they now turned planning how to get out. The doors were too large to open themselves, and Puddleglum insisted that they could not tell the giants what their true purpose was. They decided they had to keep pretending they were excited for the autumn feast and happy to be there. And when the giant nurse came in, they said they could see the king and, uh, and court leaving to go hunting. The queen was being carried by a giant litter, uh, literally a giant litter, uh, and Jill had the sense to run up in a childish manner, say how they hoped they'd be back soon and how excited they were for the feast the next evening, and asked that they may go through the castle and see everything. And the queen agreed as her courtiers laughed. Ha 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 ha. Under me. <laughs> the, <laughs> the way you communicate all caps is great, Kel. <laughs> I... I, how am I supposed to read that if it's not yelling, Chase? <laughs> I mean, what I don't get, I mean, look, I, I'm willing to buy into most stories. Sure. But in what world, in what context would a city need to carve in giant letters that you can see from space? Under me. Under me. Under I, me, like I don't. Underminer. Why would why would your city need this decoration going all the way across it? What? Here, here's my question: Is like who did this? Because I doubt the giants themselves did it, right? Because the caves are not going to be big enough for the giants later. But so, who but it's crazy because like. When they were crawling across it in the previous chapter, it was all like straight edges and and seemed pretty orderly. Like it seemed like it was part of the landscape in a way that was like very like intended. And who other than like Aslan magically just making it appear, which is probably the answer, but also like why do it this way then? Um, like who would be able to carve that out after the fact? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. There's a lot of unanswered things here. Like also the directions under me could be very, way more specific. Yeah, uh, if, if the actual task that Joe was given was to find the words written in the giant city and do what they say, that doesn't tell her to do anything. That is a direction. Right. That could be at the bottom of the hill. Or yeah. I, under me is not a command. No. Uh, like, there's a lot of stuff there. But, you know, whatever. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Because right now, uh, we, we, we start our chapter with Eustace, Jill, and Puddleglum, our respectable, uh, coming before the king and queen of the giants. Uh, and all of them finding themselves a little nervous to approach them. And Eustace starts off by, like, it's a thing where, like, the other people have intentionally used verbiage that is can be a double entendre. Now Eustace is unintentionally 
doing this, where he goes, Sire, the Lady of the Green Kirtle salutes you by us and said you'd like to have us for your autumn feast. Why is he phrasing it this way? Yeah, at that point, you you did this to yourself, dude. Like, you deserve to be eaten if, <laughs> if you're offering yourself to be had for dinner. Right. Like, that's, that's less ambiguous than the previous ones. Because for me, if I was in that situation, the way that I would phrase it, and I'm even, you know, I'm trying to think about this from a, like, you know, 1950s perspective or whatever, but I feel like the correct terminology, like, that is, you know, it's not incorrect, but you'd say, said that you would, you know, that you would allow us to join you for yeah. your auto. There's way more sensible ways than, than saying, would you have us for your autumn feast? Like, that's that's just it, nonsensical. That is it just, that's intentionally C.S. Lewis putting some clever wordplay in, but this makes more sense if it is the king and queen saying it, where it's like, we'd love to have you for our autumn feast. Yeah, like, even if he just said, like, if you please, sire, the lady of the green curl salutes you by us and sent us to join you for your autumn feast. Like that could still be ambiguous enough for right. them to be like, oh yes, we would love to have you. Like Correct. it's, I don't know. And then the and weird smiles and lick lip it or lip lick it. Some, some weird imagery that goes on in the next paragraph. Like one, a lot of a uh, lot of giant fat shaming here, which is not, you know, it, it's not great, but, you know, it is what well, it we is. We don't know what their culture norms are. Sure. But it does say, uh, like, the the queen was dreadfully fat and had a double chin and a fat powdered face, which isn't very nice thing at the best of times. <laughs> like, and, of course, looks much worse when it is ten times too big. C.S. Lewis just dunking on this queen right now. Not going to lie. I feel like this is a subtweet. I think this. I think C.S. Lewis has someone in mind when he's describing this person, and we don't know who this could be, honestly, because we're not 1957. Uh, but uh, the you know the the king licks his lips with his giant tongue, uh, and it's super weird uh, that this is talked about and emphasized. Uh, but they are ecstatic to see the children, and they're like, "Oh man, like we'd love to have you. Uh, like come in here." And uh, they get freaked out by Puddle Glove because, like, kids, they're, you know, and humans, they're used to, well, what the heck is, is this guy? And he's still drunk, and Puddle Glove goes, I'm respectable. Uh, I just love that he's still doing the respectable bit. It's, uh, it's great. Dick that works, man. You, you milk it. Um, and they're like, no, he's fine. Like, they're, they're still freaked out by him. But then we get some more Jill shaming for showing emotion. Uh, this is an odd spot for her to oh, show. Oh yeah, I'm. Because I'm glad you pointed this out, Kel, because this made me mad. <laughs> this made it, me angry. It felt like unnecessary and out of nowhere. Yeah, like uh, I'll I'll read it real quick and then we can talk about it. So C.S. Lewis says, "I hope you won't lose all interest in Jill for the rest of this book if I tell you that at this moment she began to cry." There was a good deal of excuse for her. Her feet and hands and ears and nose were still only just beginning to thaw and melted snow was trickling on. So basically, Jill starts crying 
And C.S. Lewis felt the need to let us know, hey, I hope you won't hate this character from now on if she shows any emotion in this high-stress, uncomfortable situation. What the heck? Like, of course she is allowed to cry if she is freezing cold and dripping wet and in front of a bunch of people planning to eat her. I have I have two issues here. One, I don't think you need this, right? I don't like I don't think she needs to show emotion here and be crying, right? I think there are other better opportunities for her to show emotion. Like this is kind of just feels out of place and slapped in as a way for T.S. Lewis to make a commentary like this. Because yeah. but also like why- what's the commentary? Like what's right. the and like, also, like, why would we not have sympathy for Jill at this moment? Right. But also, why is Jill, out of all moments, picking this one to cry? And it's because C.S. Lewis picked it for her. Like, for me, yeah. this is a random weird paragraph to, like, get the queen and king to start doting on them, which they were about to do anyway. Like, yeah. It's not like this changes the the course of their of their evening, or you know, it's like this could have been accomplished with the king and queen being like, "Oh, you must be so cold and hungry. Let us give you some food and bath and toys." Like, yeah, you don't even need this. Accomplish the same thing by saying, at that moment, Jill's body let out a shiver that the queen or, took note of, like, like the queen, because she's wanting her meal to be well taken care of. Is like, hey, let's get you some food. Real, like, you know, gingerbread house vibes from Hansel and Gretel. Like, yeah, let's get you in the warm. Let's feed you up, you know? You yeah. don't need the crying moment. It's It just kind of like stands. The, the point of it was to get to don't cry, little girl, or you won't be good for anything when the feast comes. I guess so. Um, is that like a, I don't know. There's, I've seen a few shows over the years that have the... Uh, if they don't see the knife coming, they don't tense up and make the meat go bad. Like that's not. Maybe. It, I mean. Not clear I, enough though. I've heard that happy cows come from California. So, you know, maybe this is kind of a similar thing. Uh, but at the same time, what you can just feed her and keep her warm. And yeah. like, it'll be fine. Like does sad fat meat tastes worse than happy fat meat? Like, I, I prefer a little, a little, uh, grief and fear in my, in my dinner. Personally, when, when I go to Whataburger and get, get my, uh, my burger, I'm, I'm making sure to ask for just whatever, whatever the scaredest cut you have is. Whenever I get a burger, I don't go to my waiter and go, can you tell me about, like, what was the mental health like of this cow? Like, was this cow suffering from any anxiety? Like, do you think this cow was satisfied? Like, what was its self-esteem like? So you don't just perform the first episode of Portlandia? Is that a Portlandia episode? Oh, the first episode of Portlandia is a couple asking about the entire like history and care and mental health of the chicken that they're ordering at a nice restaurant in Portland. Hey, me and Fred Armisen could work together. But 
Was this chicken happy? I that's what I'm getting at here. Like it just it feels weird and not necessary. But whatever. So we move on. The uh queen uh begins to bring in all these things. Jill is upset because she's like, I don't want toys and dolls and lollipops and stuff like that. She's like, I just want, you know, a bath and food and stuff, which she's going to get. So they bring her to her room. And I do like that, like, the rooms are giant rooms, you know? Yeah. That her room is the size of a church, and it's got a giant hearth, which makes Honestly, me think. I like C.S. Lewis using church as the size reference here because of what happens with her dream. Like, I think that's a fun connection that being in the church room is where she encounters Aslan and. Totally. Is redirected to the like actual thing that she's supposed to be doing. For sure, uh, it's. I mean, because there's a lot of things you could use, and this is. I think it's intentional for sure. Um, but yeah, I just I like all of the imagery here. It makes me question how giant this fire is, and are they just cutting down trees for their firewood? No, that's like something I wanted to figure out with the page and part we're on because between the giant room and fire the fact that the like foot bath is as big as a swimming pool and giant towels he says are acres now he says that this this maid servant the the queen's old nurse uh who's taking care of her is small from a giant's point of view a little old woman kind of hunched over like she's doing old woman taking care of her baby things. But like he says that she could fit into a normal room hunched over. Yeah. Now like, that with swimming pool sized feet though, doesn't line up for me. Like I don't get that. So that's, I'm trying to do the, like, this is where, you know, if you're painting word pictures, you can kind of paint yourself into a corner. If you don't have, good perspective on things because it's one thing to go oh their footbacks were the size of swimming pools and maybe that's hyperbole which but like maybe maybe a hot tub like maybe a hot tub. i would uh, guess that cs hot tubs probably didn't exist in the 50s but but like if, something like that if we're if we're looking at her old nurse maybe like you know let's call a room 10 feet tall if that's fair you know sure uh, and so let's say she's 12 feet tall, maybe. Yeah. Hunched over. Like if she, in, in her youth, she might've been 14 feet, but like, sure. that's still not maybe like a 14 maybe. foot person. I would guess probably has a two and a half foot foot. Well, you know, Shaq has a size 24. Ooh. Well, and he is, he's seven. probably seven feet tall. Okay, so even give her three to four feet feet. Like so, and so let's call the normal giants twenty feet. Yeah. You know? Sure. Maybe uh and so let's call their feet four to five feet ish. Yeah. Maybe so, maybe six or seven at the larger end. Like Yeah. So a hot tub is a good size. Maybe like a like a large hot tub. Yeah. I can deal is, with that. This is a foot bath. Like this is right. not you need two feet to be a giant size bath. Right. So, you know, if, if you're thinking of like, if it's a, 
like a bath or like a, you know, a tub that's roughly the size of like a good area rug, you know, like that's fair. You know, it's still very large for a bath, but it's, you know, swimming pool might be a slight exaggeration. Acres of towels. I think that's obviously hyperbole. Acres, like, like I'm looking out at my backyard right now and like my lot is like maybe close to a half acre. Acres of towels would be gigantic. A lot. And and so like, again, you're going with a 20 foot, let's say 20 foot, you know, person, uh, you know, your towel is probably, you know, 20 feet long. Like, you know, if your towel is as long as you are tall, give or take. Yeah. You know, maybe a little less. That's still giant yeah. towel. Huge towel. And honestly, and so, a towel that you could lay down and roll around on. Now, so I have no problems with this. Acres, I think, is just him using hyperbole, which is fine. But the rolling around to get dry is still inefficient. Yeah, definitely inefficient. I get it. If, like, <laughs> made me think of, uh, have you ever been in, like, a, like, 1970s house? Like, a true 70s oh, yeah. house with, like, carpet Love in the bathroom? That. Shag carpet lining the tub? Like, man, whoever it, was like, you know what we need to have around sources of water? Carpet. Dude, I am consistently shocked, because... For for the audience, I'm I'm a real estate agent these days, and more often than you think, you find carpet in these bathrooms. It's just like, what were you thinking? But uh, yeah, it's. I mean, the fact that you've got Joe has an audience here with this old nurse just hanging out that that part of it's weird for you to it's roll dry off, but. Uh, if I had a just nice warm room and couldn't mess up the floors by covering them in water, I get it. You know, just, just hang out, just air dry a little bit, just chilling, I guess. But we move on, and uh, they bring her some clothes made for humans, human clothes, Chase. You know, for all why? those humans that have been hanging out this whole time. Why do they have human clothes but no humans? Who goes to someone and says, you know what, let me leave you my clothes so for the next people you have here. I mean, no one. I don't know about you, I do that every time I go to a dinner party. Yeah, but that's just because you're just trying to get rid of clothes. You, that's that's Goodwill. <laughs> yeah, I bring, I bring my Goodwill bag everywhere I go and just kind of sprinkle a few socks. You're just leaving places, things at places and they're like, whose shirt is this? <laughs> Was someone here? This is so weird. I wasn't even in Young Life. <laughs> why, do, why do they have this shirt? Uh, yeah, that honestly, that'd be a fun prank. That honestly, I kind of want to do it now. But they have all these human sized clothes, and that doesn't send any red flags or even yellow flags up with her. She goes, "Oh yeah, that that tracks." Oh yeah, they must just be welcoming people. They they have people over all the time. That's why they they keep these nice clothes just my size around. It's yeah. I it did make me wonder like who else has been lured because this is far away from any human civilization. 
Well, this is I'm, not nearby. You also have to remember, this is like how long has the prince been gone and every person they've sent there has never returned. So you have to imagine at least some of them are probably victims of the giants. Yeah, but like this is seems like women's clothes, right? I mean, I could maybe, be wrong, but I mean, it could be anyone going after you know who knows. But uh, we, you know, we continue through with the, uh, the 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 clothes of the humans that were eaten, uh, just chilling on on Jill and the and the gang. And Jill's like, "Oh, cool, my meal." And I just want to read the sentence, and then we just move on. We just kept moving forward because the meal. Which C.S. Lewis writes, the meal, which I suppose we must call dinner, though it was near tea time. Why does this matter? It doesn't. But the meal chase was cockaleeky soup. Cockaleeky soup. And hot roast turkey and all these other things. That's it. Just wanted to read it. Uh, and then we move forward. Um, I'm interpreting that as chicken and leek soup, personally. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> often refer to your chicken soup cockaleeky soup. It's, that is uh, sounds, yeah. like you need, sounds like you need to get your prostate checked, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we move forward. We uh, we blaze a trail. Uh, but Jill keeps getting upset because the nurse keeps bringing her toys, and even Joe, she's like, "Dude, I don't need any of these." Uh, and nurse is like, "Nah, nah, nah. Like you'll 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 appreciate them. I guess because they're just trying to like." Keep her happy. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the like. I wonder if it's a like you are the size of our babies thing, or maybe. if it's just a this was the old nurse for the queen, and so she only knows how to talk baby talk. Could be uh, because, like, I mean, for the listeners, like this this old lady keeps doing stuff like. Oh, tut, tut, tut. You'll want him all right when you've had a bit of rest, I know. Tee, hee, hee. Betty, bye now. Precious poppet. Like, that's... Like, she's talking in baby talk the entire time. Yeah. So, it could be that she just views them as babies because they are small. And that's fine, you know. But we uh, we, we get a little hint here of things to come because uh, she looks outside and uh, Jill goes, is it snowing still? And she goes, no, it's raining now, ducky. Rain will wash away all the nasty snow, uh, and then you'll get to go out and play. Uh, and so what we're getting here is, a like, it's foreshadowing for the very next page uh, of, like, the, going to wash away the snow that prevented this, the, the gang from seeing all the letters and everything. Um, and so the giantess kisses her and goodnight, and Jill thought it was disgusting. Uh, but, you know, she goes to sleep anyway. Uh, and then she enters the dream sequence and not like the Snyder dream sequence where, you know, Joker and Batman are somehow on the same team and Batman's shooting people, but a, you know, a C.S. Lewis dream sequence, uh, where we finally get some more Aslan. And is, is the Joker a socialist in this version too? I believe so. Cool. Well, I think he's. You don't want to call him a socialist, but you want to call him like progressive, so that it like it's it's easier. Cool, cool, cool. cool. No, um, it's it's real weird, right? Because so that what happens is she in her dream wakes up in the same room, which you know is a freaky way to start. Because I mean, I've had those dreams, you know, where it's like you wake up in your dream in the same place you were sleeping, and so everything gets real weird. Uh, but 
And the then giant, you just murder everybody, right? Yeah. Uh, the giant like wooden, in a normal dream? Totally. Uh, the giant wooden horse starts rolling towards her and turns into a lion, which, uh, you know, in classic C.S. Lewis fashion, is actually not just a, you know, there are no other lions other than that one lion from Magician's Nephew, uh, if you remember that several years ago. And that lion was so annoying that there was never a lion again. Never a lion. Uh, every lion is Aslan. Um, and so Aslan takes her up in his jaws, uh, and she could feel his lips but and his breath, but not his teeth, which I think is is really important and fascinating there. He carries her and made her look out, and the moon shone bright and written across the world or the sky, and she didn't know which ones were the words, Under me! <laughs> under me! The underminer! Uh, which is what they're going to have to do. Yes. Uh, and she, you know, dream fades away, and she didn't remember any of it. So why have this dream, Chase? So she can remember it on the next page, Cal. <laughs> Whenever. No, for me, literally the same page. It is a few paragraphs down. Like, it's, and most of that's just dialogue because she wakes up and Eustace and a now sober uh, Puddle Glum come up to her, uh, even though Puddle Glum's definitely got a hangover. Um, and he's they, they come up and uh, they, they're like, oh, hello. Like, how are you doing? Let's go look out the window. <laughs> To the window. Like, why is, like, again, first thing they do is just go to the window, and lo and behold, wouldn't you believe it? The rain washed away the snow, and written on the, like, the flat part of the, you know, stuff under what is now apparent to be the giant ruined city um, that they walked through the previous, uh, you know, few days, are written the words, under me! And upon seeing the words, under me! Our travelers know immediately that they have botched the second and third signs. Now I say the word botched because I don't want to read the word that C.S. Lewis actually uses. Yeah, C.S. Lewis makes some moves in this chapter with his word choices, but... Uh, and no, granted... This continues is, to be a family-friendly podcast. It's the 1950s, and so, you know, it's not like we can blame him necessarily, because words obviously carry different connotations, but... There are still words where it's like, well, even reading this feels weird, right? Yeah, um, we don't need to. We don't need to bring them in. <laughs> we don't need to. Uh, and so they're like, well, we, uh, you know, we ruined the second and third signs. Which, if you remember, the first sign was that they would meet an old friend, uh, and that if they greeted him kindly, that they'd get help. <clears throat> Failed. Uh, second sign that they would travel to the ruined giant city. Well, they they did do that, but they passed right by it. Yeah, <clears throat> I didn't notice. Third, third sign they still haven't botched it they can still accomplish it and it just they just have to do what is written under or written on the on the you know in the ground on the hills of yeah. of the city o obey the the writing that they find there which is uh still which, weird because so they can again is not a command but you know right and they they can still accomplish the third and fourth tasks, and they will, which is good. And they uh, fail at the second task. They just didn't realize that they had completed it. Correct. Uh, it, but like, regardless, you know they they make it they make it work. Uh, it, but they realize that like, oh well, obviously we're supposed to go under this hill uh, or under this place, 
Um, and, you know, everyone is now blaming themselves. Like, uh, you know, they're like, Jill is going, man, like, this is my fault. I should have been repeating the signs. And, you know, I, I definitely should have remembered about this, uh, which my thing is like, yeah, they probably should have. Yeah, and we're all on Puddle, the same page, Jill. And then Puddle Glum's like, nope, this is my fault. Like, I knew about, I knew it, I knew it all. And like, Eustace is like, bro, you're like the only one not to blame. Uh, he, he's like, you tried to make us stop. And he's like, yeah, I didn't try hard enough though. Like, probably could have just snatched both of you by the by the neck, caught on each of you with one hand, and just forced you. <laughs> Which honestly, he probably could have, but I mean, could have, should have, but it's a. Uh... It would have been a different adventure if he had been acting like that. Kidnapping, not ideal, uh, as we've discussed in this pod before. Um, As as they are going through at this very moment in the story. Correct. They just don't realize it yet. No, and and what we come to is a realization by Eustace where he says, uh, like, we were so jolly keen on getting to this place that we weren't bothering about anything else, at least I know was. Uh, ever since we met that woman with the knight who didn't talk, we've been thinking of nothing else, and we'd nearly forgotten about Prince Rillian and Puddle Glum, again, with some fantastic insight. It's like, I bet that's exactly what she intended. Uh, yeah. And it's like, again, says something that's inc- incredibly true, and we're just going to move straight past it, because Jill's like, yeah, but how could we not see the writing? Uh, and like, Eustace is like, bro, we did. We were literally climbing in it. We were in the E. I even noted that it looked like a giant E as we were going through it. I said, this kind of looks like it spells out under me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But no one listens, you know. Uh, At that point, they could see the house windows. Yep. But like, and I know you're going to touch on this later, but Jill is really just deflecting. She's trying to be like, I bet Aslan just wrote that. There's no way we we missed it. And Eustace is like, nah. Actually, it's pretty smart. He knows what he's talking about. This is on us. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, I'm glad that they do that. Which, like, still doesn't answer our question of how did it get there in the first place. But Nope, and we won't get that answer. That's not our story, Chase. I guess not. I shouldn't have been asking those questions. Please don't cut my back. I, well, can't guarantee anything. We'll just hope to sit. Hope, hopefully, you know, things work out better for you. But. Jill asked the question that we've been asking. Under me doesn't seem to make much sense. What are the obstruction puddle I'm like, uh, duh, it's obvious. It means we've got to look for the prints under the city. And it's like, yeah, I guess. But, like, did someone write these instructions just for them? Like, so that they would go under this hill to find the prints? Or is, like, this a instruction for all the people who live in the cave system beneath this city? You know, who knows? But they're just going to ignore all those things. They're just like, yep, that's true. That's what we've got to do. How are we going to go there? Because we can't, you know, it, it feels bad for us to just say, hey, we're going to leave. Yeah. I mean, I do like that they try some strategy here. Like, they don't just wing it the way they've been everywhere else. But right, yeah, they realize they can't open these giant doors. Because, you know... They're giant doors. Um, and it'd be conspicuous to just be caught climbing out a window. You know? <clears throat> it's kind of hard to to just kind of wave that one off. Yeah. Not ideal. Uh, and so they decide, hey, 
we'll just wait until, you know, there's not a lot of people. Maybe it's like, we'll wait till the day, uh, which, you know, is way less conspicuous because like, hey, worst comes to worst. Like, people are just going to go, oh, yeah, you're probably just exploring the grounds. Uh, so they decide they'll just wait until the daytime and people are going to be moving about and they've got to pretend like they're excited for the, the autumn feast. Uh, and they're like, oh, that's tomorrow night. And so they, they <laughs> decide to go their way. Which Chase, the biggest part of their plan is really their demeanor. Their attitude, Chase. Uh, yeah. How would you describe their attitude? <laughs> Frolicsome. Awesome. Um, genial. Mary. Uh, Mary. Mary's a great one. Uh, this is another situation where C.S. Lewis has some particular word choice, and we're going to be bigger people than that. Are we? I don't really want to be. I mean, it's your call. You're the one who I has just, the real job. I mean, that's true. Listen, this is not a commentary on anything, right? What we're about to do. I'm just reading. I just want wow. this to be known. These we're are reading. Quotes. If you're mad at anyone, be mad at C.S. Lewis. And be, be mad that hilarious. You know, language, language has changed over 70 but, years. And it's funny how language has changed over 70 years. So but so they're like, hey, what's what how should we be? Because like they think that we're children. They think that we're, you know, these things. We have to like, you know, play into that. And Puddleglum says, gay. That's what we've got to be, gay. As if we hadn't a care in the world. Frolicsome. You two youngsters have always got, or haven't always got very high spirits, I've noticed, which is hilarious uh, coming from Puddle Glove. That is a fantastic lie. I was like, hey, y'all are a little bit too cynical. Y'all need to be a little bit more, like, joyful. Which, to be honest, he's kind of right. They've been much bigger downers than he has been this entire time. Yeah. I mean, since they've started the journey, he's definitely been the positive one, which is not saying a lot of good things there. But he says... Uh, you know, you just have to watch me and do as I do. I'll be gay like this. And he smiles and frolics him. And he, you know, does a little dance and a jig. Uh, he's like, you'll soon get into it. Uh, they think I'm a funny fellow already. You see, I dare uh, say you two thought I was a trifle tipsy last night. But I do assure you it was, well, most of it was put on. I had an idea it would come in useful somehow. So, turns out Puddle Glum is an incredible... Uh, you know, master of espionage was like, I was only pretending to be drunk. Mostly. Sure, sure you were, Puglum. Sure, buddy. Hey, do we have, Puglum, do you have a problem that you want to talk about? Like, are you okay? You were acting very respectable. Respectable. Uh, and so, it's just, uh, and then, like, Eustace is like, alright, gay's the word. Now if we could only get someone to open this door while we're fooling about and being gay, <laughs> we've got to find out all we can about this castle. It's the whole time, in context, it makes a lot of sense. They're trying to be fun and merry, and that is, you know, like if you're, you know, singing old Christmas songs, you know, yeah. you're gonna find they're just being merry. They're, they're like, just having a so, good time. They're just having a good time, and so in context, it makes sense. But reading this in 2022 makes that statement just way funnier because the context is just very different. I mean, honestly, more power to them. More power to them. Uh, but at that moment, the nurse comes in and it's like, hey, would you guys like to see the king and the king's court setting off to go hunting? And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, and they see, you know, hounds and horns and giants moving about. And, uh, you know, the hounds 
were normal sized for some reason. Uh, like they're just normal the, dogs. The dogs aren't giants. The giants are giants, Kel. Yeah, but what good is a tiny little dog to a giant? That is something that I've wondered with this whole feast setup is like, these kids are not going to be that much food for this whole court of giants. Like, <laughs> I wish one of us was going to be the one to bring that question up, and I'm glad that I outlasted you. That you're the one thinking of like these children are just not appetizing enough. They are like, a snack at most for like, if they want to wrap them in bread and make them kolaches. Like it would be the size of one kolache, which yeah. is. Like, Great snack, not a meal. This is a fine, like, snack or, you know, like, appetizer. Maybe this is just, like, a delicacy. Like, they have, like, a good feast coming up. They have, you know, the most of their meal, but this is just, like, the kids are the cherry on top. Yeah, yeah, the the humans are, are like, their caviar. Yeah, could be, you know, and which tracks with them thinking about them as babies. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's not like a giant meal, which is probably why they're going hunting and whatnot. Is like to actually that well, we still need eighteen hundred horses and deer and be like you know whatever to eat. So they're going to go do that. Uh, but they you know see everyone and uh, they're trying to pretend to be you know happy and merry and whatnot. And they you know see the queen uh, and the queen is on a you know giant litter and Jill runs up to her. And it's like, oh, please, you're not going away, are you? You will come back. She's like, yes, my dear, I'll be back tonight. She's like, oh, good, how lovely. And may we may come to the feast tomorrow night, mayn't we? We're so longing for tomorrow night, and we do love being here. And while you're out, we may run over the whole castle and see everything, mayn't we? Do say yes. And the queen is like, wow, these are, you know, this is the easiest we've ever had this. Yeah, yeah, she's doing the work for us. She wants to be here and be eaten she's she's bad she's you know she just she's asking for it you know which i mean it is telling that the chapter ends with all the courtiers uh drowning out the queen's voice with laughter because they're just like this is incredible which it's it is incredible because to our knowledge they haven't realized why the giants think that's funny Right. They've only realized that they can be treated like children. They haven't actually noted that they are the meal. The kids don't know until the next chapter. And I have not read ahead, but if I remember correctly, it's they kind of like it's I I remember it being somewhat there is no like Hansel and Gretel moment where they're like having to escape the oven kind of thing. Uh, and kill the witch. It's I. I think they see like a menu or like a like a recipe or something. Yeah, that it calls for like human. It feels like they're going to see a menu or overhear someone talking nearby or someone's gonna like misspeak and let them in on it. Like it doesn't feel like they're going to be making a big like dramatic escape in kind of like a, we're going to fight our way out of here. Or like, no, we're and, gonna- and I believe they do. I think they just kind of like have to stealthily escape. Uh, if, I, if, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. I think the, me- the recipe or menu thing I think is, is accurate. How they escape, I don't know. But Chase, the chapter ends with some laughing, but you know, there's no, there's no joking around. 
about further up and further in. I guess not. It's a very serious time. It's a very serious time. Chase, would you like to start us off? Uh, sure. So for my further up and further in, really just wanted to talk about the idea of repentance as redirection. And so this is kind of more of a, like, taking C.S. Lewis's imagery and the kind of theology that he's hinting at as a Christian writer doing Christian allegory and just kind of drawing that out a little bit. Because in this chapter, we see Jill fall asleep and have this dream where Aslan appears to her in her church room um, and essentially get her back on track. But the way he does that is by first, he asks her to say the signs and she realizes that she doesn't remember them at all in her dream. I think she still remembers them in, in normal life, but she realizes she can't remember them. And then his response to that isn't to rebuke her. It's not to criticize her. It's not to uh, even necessarily like tell her what she should have been doing. He simply picks her up in his, in his mouth, mind you, he, he, he consumes her pretty much. Uh, but like, he doesn't use his teeth. Like she feels his lips, she feels his warm breath, but she doesn't feel his teeth, which is telling because the correction of God is kindness and mercy. Um, but he takes her to the window and shows her where she went wrong, essentially. He shows her the words that she missed, the city that she missed, and then that's the end of the dream. That's her whole correction. And that's all she needs for her and Puddle Glum and Eustace to come together and have their I'm sorry fest and have their like redirection back to the actual mission that they were supposed to be on. Because the point of repentance is not to feel bad. The point of repentance is to be redirected from the wrong thing to the right thing from the distractions of for Jill comfort and, and I mean, really just the idea of having like everything given to them in this theoretical good place that they were going to definitely not being eaten. Um, and instead being pointed back to no, this was the way you were supposed to be going the whole time, the mission, the words of Aslan and saving the prince. So repentance as redirection, not as punishment. Totally. Uh, my further up and further in is the realization of major mistakes, right? And, and what I mean by this is in every good piece of fiction, obviously your characters are flawed. You're, you know, your heroes can't just be perfect all the time because they wouldn't be compelling. So they have to have flaws and make mistakes. But also, it's even more compelling when your characters make pretty major mistakes. It not, it's not just, oh, I didn't see that coming. It's, no, I actively chose something incorrectly and poorly uh, that had a dire consequence. And so here, obviously, we see the you know gang get, they, they don't follow instructions and they get sidetracked and are almost eaten, right? But in, you know, take Harry Potter uh, for four books. His mistakes are fairly limited. They're more or less going to be 
him just not knowing things until book five, in which case his, you know, desire to be a savior and to, you know, be the person that, you know, redeems things and kind of being rash ends up costing the life of his godfather. And, you know, he is lured in without thinking things through. Uh, and he realizes his massive mistake and has to reconcile with that somehow. Uh, if you look at Lord of the Rings, Frodo abandons Sam uh, to go with Gollum, uh, and Gollum leads him into Shelob's lair, where Frodo should die, if not for the like great friendship that you know Sam displays and uh, the the care that he has for Frodo, uh, where he goes in and kills Shelob, rescues. Uh, Frodo, you know, and you see this throughout, you can look at Luke in, you know, Cloud City, uh, and like, should he have gone there? Who knows? But he ends up losing his hand because of it. But it's necessary, it needs to happen. You know, uh, it's a trap in, you know, episode six. Uh, there's always the major mistakes that you can't just say, oh, man, like, this was, you know, a character flaw. He's a little goofy sometimes. It's like, no, these are mistakes that you have to work through. Uh, and we've seen this throughout the Narnian series as well. You see Eustace letting his greed overcome him, and uh, he turns into a little dragon, uh, which, you know, that happens. Uh, you have uh, major things that throughout the books that happen where you go, no, this character has to deal with a major mistake. But because it's a kid's story, it is going to be okay. But Chase, I've uh, the writing's on the wall or, or the hill. Or the the mountainside, the, the yeah, floor. Sure. Uh, and it says, subscribe. <laughs> Jace, can you let our viewers and listeners know where they can find more of our uh, podcasts? Yeah. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, really wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we're there. Chronicles of Podcasts. You can also find us on uh, Instagram at Chronicles of Podcast, where we post when we post new episodes, and you can keep up with us there. Uh, while you're in any of these places, make sure to leave us a rating, a review to help other people find us. And yeah, we will see you next time for Chapter Nine of the Silver Chair. And we promise things are going to happen next chapter. Probably, it's got they, to at some point. They will at least do something. You know, it is what it is. But whatever. Uh, whatever. So, whatever. Um, this is another chapter where not a lot happens. Yeah.